good to be together. Uh, this is actually Hot Sunday. Uh, we've been talking about it, but, the, but our, because our church's name is Grace, uh, the Lord brought us Grace this morning because it's not that hot, right? Uh, we've been replacing our air conditioning unit uh, here in this room. Uh, it's something that we knew was going to happen at some point, and so we, uh, we've been going through the process. So there is no AC in the building today, but it seems to be working out. All right, we'll, we'll see what it feels like in, after I preach for three or four hours. But so far, so far, so good. Uh, it feels like it's working out. Uh, we, are, we are excited about gathering, and uh, we, we appreciate everybody who's joined us online and everybody who's here in the room. Uh, one of the things we're going to start is on October 11th, we're going to start meeting outdoors at the park also. Uh, so here's how that's going to work. Uh, we're going to have an indoor gathering at 9 a.m., uh, on Sundays in this room, just like we're doing it right now, masks and separated, and we're going to live stream. The live stream is going to continue at 9 a.m., and then we're going to go outside at the pavilion, which I don't know if you guys have been out there, but the park and the pavilion are getting renovated. Things are starting to happen out there, which is really, really exciting. So the pavilion's looking amazing this week, but by next week, it'll look even more amazing, and by two weeks from now, the pavilion will be done, and the work will have been started on the park and so we'll gather out in the pavilion. We have no idea what to expect. Uh, there could be 12 people or there could be 300 people. So we have no idea what to expect out there, um, but we're going to try and figure it out as we go. We'll have some wristbands that kind of share with others your comfortability with COVID. Uh, so if you want to stay away from people, you can just hold up your wristband and say, look, no, I'm, I'm a red wristband. That means don't hug me. And if you just want to hug everybody, you can say, I can find only people with green wristbands and appropriately hug them. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to gather outside. It'll be fun. We're going to start some kids programming. And so there'll be some stuff going on for the kids and start to kind of regather safely and do this together. We're really excited about that. I hope you guys are excited as well. Our staff, guys, has been working so hard and COVID has thrown so many curveballs at us in so many different ways. Uh, and so your staff have been unbelievable all-stars in the midst of all of this. And every single person on our staff team has worked way more hours than they should in the church over the last six to eight months trying to make this work the best that we possibly can. So I want to encourage you to encourage them um, because they've been working overtime trying to make all of these things happen. And it seems like simple things like we're just going to gather indoors or we're just going to gather outdoors. Uh, but a lot of logistics and work and all those things go into all of that stuff. So um, give them some love. And uh, not next week, right, but the 11th, we'll start some outdoor gathering. Lots of announcements coming this week on social media and all of those things. So you can track with us in all of these things. We're starting a new series today, which I'm really excited about. The series is called When We Were Kings. Uh, and we're talking about the book of First Kings. And so if you have your Bibles or your devices, you can open them to chapter 1 of 1 Kings. We're going to be walking through the whole book of 1 Kings over the next couple months, and as we do, we're going to assign some reading every week for you. Uh, the thing about 1 Kings is it's really thick, and there's a lot going on in it. There's a lot of characters, there's a lot of happenings, there's a lot of names, there's a lot of nonsense. There's a lot going on in these pages and so every single week on Instagram, social media, all those kinds of things, we're going to roll out, hey, here's the passages for you to read this week. Um, maybe we can put those in the weekly email too uh, and just kind of say, here's where we're at. So this week is chapter one. Uh, you, you missed your assignment already because it wasn't assigned. 
But for next week, as we come in next week, Lee Lopez is going to be here next week. I don't know how many of you guys know Lee. Not very many. So uh, it's going to be amazing. Lee is an amazing preacher, uh, an up-and-comer in the Grace family, and he, he's going to bring it. And we're really excited to have him with us next week to bring the word. And he's going to be talking about 1 Kings chapters 2 and 3. And so for next week, read those first two chapters. But I want to kind of set up this series by walking through chapter 1 today. And chapter 1 is a hot mess. It is like a mix of uh, the, the TV show Succession. How many of you have watched Succession on HBO? Uh, and Game of Thrones. I'm not going to ask how many have watched that. But it's like a mix between those two things. It's this nasty kind of convergence of like power and authority and death and all of these things kind of converging at one. It's, it's, think about any show or any time throughout history when a leader has been dying or leaving and a group of people are fighting to fill that role. So if you study the history of the kings of England, like there is so much nasty stuff that happens around who is the successor. Who is the one that follows the king? Who is the one that's up next? Is it the firstborn son? But maybe the firstborn son's an idiot. So is it the secondborn son? Or all of these kings were sleeping around all the time. So is it this son that was born from this other woman who's not his wife over here? And there's all these battles and fights over all of these things. This is exactly what's happening in 1 Kings. So when we get to 1 Kings, because what, what this chapter really is about, and what the, really the whole book of 1 Kings is about, is about power. It's about how we exert our power. It's about what power we fight for. It's about how we yield to power, how we show power, how we give authority, all of the ways in which we compromise in order to get power, in order to maintain power, in order to keep it, in order to hold it. And it's about not only a nation's longing for power, because Israel as a nation is longing for power. They want to be like the other nations. They want to be a strong and mighty nation, right? There's a little bit of a slave mentality still in the nation of Israel where the people of God had moved from being slaves and now they don't want to be slaves anymore. They want to be on the top of the pyramid, right? They want to be on top of the hierarchy. They want to hold the authority and power. They want to fight the culture wars. They want to win the culture wars and they want to hold the power of the kingdoms, they want to have military power. They want to have political power. They want to have riches and money and resources. They want it all, which may sound a little bit like the country that we live in now. We want that same authority and power. And so we look at this and we see this picture in 1 Kings of both a nation fighting for power and authority and how they go about it, but we also see individuals within the story of the nation fighting for authority and power. So let's jump in. First Kings chapter 1. It starts off with a bang. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. The Bible's so nice in how it talks about old people. And although they had covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. When, he, when it says he could not get warm, they're not actually talking about him getting warm. All right? There's kids in the room, so I'm not going to go too deep into this. Um, but this is not about him being cold at night. This is about something else. Therefore his servant said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that the lord king may be warm. So they sought a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and they found Abishag the Shumanite, which doesn't sound like a very attractive name, uh, but apparently Abishag was really beautiful. 
uh, and brought her to the king, and the young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended him, but the king knew her not. Um, what, here, here's what we see right off the bat, and I, I don't know who the king's council is. Um, I'm guessing it's like a, a, a frat house or something. It's like a group of 20-year-old boys. Like, the king is dying. What does he need? He needs a really beautiful woman. That's what he needs. Let's, let's send her to him. And so they send the king this beautiful girl, Abishag, and it doesn't work out. I don't want to get into the details because there's kids in the room, but it doesn't work out. The king doesn't get warm. Uh, is everybody with me? All the adults, just a nod. I can't see your faces. You all look like you have angry eyes, but this is, this is what the Bible is telling. I'm not, I'm not making this stuff up. This is what's going on here. And, and here's what we see. Uh, what, what happens here is we see right from the start tiny compromises that seem innocent enough. Notice even the language of it. The language of it seems so innocent. The king needs to get warm, guys. And can you see like the tiny little exception making that's happening here? Can you see the tiny compromises that both the nation is happening, is, is, is happening in the nation and is happening for David the king? There's all kinds of excuses you could make here. Well, he's just an old man. It's, it's fine. Right? He, he is the king. He should be able to do what he wants, right? What's the damage in this? Like, who's he really hurting? It's just a little tiny sin. It's just a tiny little thing. We don't need him to be our pastor. We just need him to be our king. We don't, what does it hurt? You know, all guys kind of have this, right? You can hear all the excuses that are made as we begin to jump into this thing. And there are excuses that are made and tiny compromises that are made. But those tiny compromises are always the difference between wisdom and foolishness. Tiny compromises always lead us to larger compromises. Things that seem innocent always lead us to something that feels awful. It's these tiny steps that we see David take here. David, the man after God's own heart, right? The king who should have learned by now with Bathsheba. Let's just, can we remember that story, right? When he was a young man, he had these same problems. He should have figured these things out by now, but he hasn't figured it out. And then the nation is making compromises. The nation is not only making compromises, but they're complicit in the sin and the compromise of the king. And so David has always been a good king, but David has always been a really bad father. Uh, it's true of a lot of leaders, right? Whether you're running a Fortune 500 company or whether you're running a nation, you have to some point choose what compromises you're going to make. And David, over and over again, chose to make the compromise of, I'm going to pay attention to the nation more than I'm going to pay attention to my sons. I would imagine David was not the guy who was at his kids' football games, Right? There was something going on. There was a matter of state. There was something important. There was a battle to be fought. There was a decision to be made. There was something going on. And so the power of being king was always more valuable to him than the power of being a father. We see these shortcuts that he's taken. We see right from the start he's taken shortcuts in his marriage. We see that he's taken shortcuts as a father. And before we even arrive at 1 Kings, we see the history of his sons. David's oldest son is a man named Amnon. Amnon raped his sister and was killed. His second oldest son is a man named Absalom. Absalom tried to lead a rebellion against David so that he could take power and be in control of the kingdom, and he was killed. And now we're in this place where David is about to die. He's about to, uh, to be done. And so the question becomes, who is his successor? 
He has two candidates in the wings to be his successor. The first is Adonai. I'm sorry, Adonijah is the first one. And, and, and he, as he's preparing, um, David's about to die. Adonijah's already named himself as the successor. He just, I'm the oldest, I'm the oldest one left, and so I'm going to be the successor, I'm the one. And so he's actually, as this, as this story transpires in, in the chapter one, he's actually having a party and a celebration with all of his friends about how he's the king. So he's having this feast because he's already proclaimed himself king, he's already gathered around him all of the people that he needs to become king. And, and it's really important to recognize here the difference in the process between how David became king and how Solomon becomes king. Remember how David became king? The prophet came to him. The prophet saw him. The prophet anointed him. There was a holy moment. It was a word from the Lord. David was the unexpected king. Saul was the expected king. David was the unexpected king. And, and he anoints him and he names him king. So there was this holy process of hearing from the Lord and hearing from a holy man. And now what's happened is there's political posturing. There's power. There's authority. There's fighting. There's gathering. There's political posturing all of the things that we see in the news these days are happening right here in the middle of this. So Adonijah recruits military backing from Joab. He recruits priestly backing from Abathar. And then Solomon begins to do the same. He recruits, actually wisely, he recruits David's friends. So he goes after Benaniah, who's one of David's mighty men. He goes after Nathan, who's his prophet. And so both of them are looking for backing from the military and backing from the church. Does this make sense? They're looking to control power. And by controlling power, the way that they do that is they gather in both the military strength and the strength of the church to sign off on what happens. Surprisingly, a mess happens here. Bathsheba gets involved, right? Because whenever you're having trouble, the best thing to do is to recruit your mom, right? And so Solomon recruits his mom into this. Bathsheba goes to David, Bathsheba recruits Nathan, and all of a sudden, everything is rolling downhill. David is probably not at his best in this moment. He's trying to figure it out. He wants to pass the buck. He doesn't want to make the decision, and Nathan says to him, all of Israel is waiting for you. All of Israel is watching. You are the one that has to make this decision. And so he chooses Solomon. And when he chooses Solomon, the other brother runs into the church, I love this, he runs to the temple and he actually grabs what they call the horns of the altar and he just stays on the horns of the altar. He just believes, my brother won't kill me if I'm holding the altar. And so for days, he just stands and hugs the altar saying, please brother, don't kill me, I'm hanging out in the church. The entire book is this hot mess revolving around power. Lord Acton, the 19th century British historian, said this. He said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when we think about leadership, and when we think about authority, and when we think about power, leadership at its core is about power and influence. It's about leaders using what they have to get what they believe needs to be done, done. But the question is, what kind of power gets things done? Because there's multiple ways that we can use power. There's multiple ways of power in the world, and there's a distinction between the two forms of power that we see being pursued here in 1 Kings chapter 1. And, and we're going to call these two distinctions empire power and kingdom power. 
Empire power is the power that the world uses. It is worldly wisdom. And, and leadership in the empire is making people do what you want them to do. It's I'm going to, to get you to do what I want to do. I'm going to persuade you. I'm going to push you. I'm going to command and control. I'm going to figure out how to get you to do my will. Leadership in the kingdom, as defined by Jesus, is laying down your life for your friends. It's this idea of if we want to be leaders in the kingdom, what we do is we lay down ourselves for others. So what empire power tries to do is tries to command and control, win the day, and overpower. What leadership in the kingdom does is it's servant leadership. It's that I lay down my agenda. I lay down my power. I lay down my authority so that I might empower someone else. Sociologists talk about the difference between socialized power and personalized power. Uh, socialized power is power that is used to benefit others. It's that idea of I have some level of authority in my job as a pastor, as a father, as someone who has some amount of resources in the world, as someone who owns a home, as someone who can put food on the table every single week. I have some sort of socialized power that I have the option every week, do I use that to benefit others or do I only use that to benefit myself? Personalized power is using power only for personal gain. It's saying I'm going to take the power that I have and I'm only going to use that for myself. I'm only going to use that for my own gain, for my own reputation, so that I can gather more power and more strength. And so I don't care who gets stepped on or trampled on along the way as long as I'm gaining more power. As long as my kingdom gets bigger, I'm going to keep pursuing power and keep pursuing authority. Now, it's important to note that these two sources of power aren't mutually exclusive. Because there are moments when a leader can use his power to benefit others. There are moments when everybody gains, where everybody wins, where both the leader benefits and the followers benefit. There are lots of those scenarios, but the obvious problem comes when personalized power dominates and the leader's gains often come at the follower's expenses. This is what we call empire power. And what we see in chapter 1 is this, and this is what we see in the world today. This is what we see in any place we're looking for power. What we see is empire power covered up in kingdom language. There is a way to talk about it that makes it seem innocent. There's a way to talk about it which makes tiny exceptions and excuses. There's a way to talk about it that where leaders can delude themselves into thinking that they're working for the greater good and using socialized power, but they're actually engaging in behavior that is morally corrupt and bankrupt. Uh, Terry Price, who is an expert in leadership decisions, he talks about that sense of power as called exception-making. Uh, exception-making is when we allow ourselves to say, for other people this might be wrong, but because I have the best interest of my followers at hand, this is okay for me. Exception-making is saying, I know there is a tiny compromise that we're taking here, but I think it actually gets us to something good. And so I'll take the tiny compromise here because I think it gets us to something better. Does that make sense? And, and over and over and over again in 1 Kings, especially the first three chapters, we see this mix of wisdom and exception-making. 
We see this mix of worldly understanding and and understanding of power and control mixed with exception-making over and over and over again. Um, The Bible actually has a lot to say about power, much more than you would imagine. Luke chapter 10, verse 19 says, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Luke 24.49 says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you will stay in the city until you are clothed with what? With power from on high. That's Jesus. Matthew 28.18, Jesus said to them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, and then I give it to you. God is not opposed to power. He wants to teach us how to yield it. God wants to teach us to differentiate between empire power and kingdom power. The reason our world is in chaos right now, the reason so many people are losing their mind about November, what's the date? What's the election date? Third, 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 whatever day it is, I don't even know. Whatever that day is, the reason everybody's losing their mind is because we don't know the difference between kingdom power and empire power. We don't understand the distinction. So God wants to teach us the difference between power that dominates and control and power that empowers and lifts up others. He wants to teach us the difference between empire power and kingdom power. We've got a little grid here that will help us in this. On one side of the column, there is a list of what happens with personalized power or empire power. On the other side, there is a list of things that happen with socialized power or kingdom power. So empire power looks out for the benefit of the leader first, while kingdom power looks out for all people. Their leadership benefits the whole. Personalized power or empire power uses command and control, while kingdom power uses grace and truth. Empire power uses division and strength to keep power. Kingdom power unites people and gives power to the powerless. Empire power pushes down those without power, Kingdom power lifts up and brings freedom for those without power. Empire power disempowers others, while kingdom power empowers others. Empire power turns anyone who is a threat to personal power into an enemy, while kingdom power practices enemy love and forgiveness over and over again. Empire power speaks loudly and boastfully, and kingdom power listens carefully and recognizes its own shortcomings. Empire power, the goal is to get things done and be efficient at any cost. While kingdom power, the goal is to see God's will executed in God's way. Empire power, the source of power is self and it has to be protected. Kingdom power, the source of power is God and it needs to be surrendered to. There is a huge distinction between empire power and kingdom power. Now listen, I I know what most of you are thinking here. Most of you are thinking, I'm going to make some sort of political assumption that one party is doing this right and the other party is doing this wrong. Can I just suggest to you, neither party is, is going after kingdom power. Both parties are practicing empire power over and over and over again. And we, like lemmings and like sheep, are falling for that and believing that that's the most important thing in the world. And we're freaking out, losing our minds, making enemies of everyone around us. And there's this anxiety and fear. And so the question that we want to ask is, what type of leadership do we want to practice in this place? 
What type of power do we want to be about? Because you can see how compromise happens in order to get something done. I've seen it happen in churches, right? We're just going to take this little compromise here. We're going to take this little shortcut because ultimately it will lead us to something that is bigger and something that's of the kingdom. And so we're going to make this little exception right here because this little exception may get us to a bigger kingdom thing. Here's the thing. You cannot pursue kingdom dreams with the world's strategies. And that's what we're doing. We cannot pursue the kingdom with the world's strategies. And over and over and over again, we keep falling to this idea that the world's strategies, that the world's wisdom is better than the kingdom's strategies and the kingdom's wisdom. And 1 Kings teaches us over and over and over again that kingdom power, kingdom authority, kingdom wisdom is always greater than worldly wisdom. It's always better than best practices. How many of you were taught that God never wanted a king for Israel? few of you? Some of you just aren't sure whether you're supposed to raise your hands. This, when we wear masks, what I've realized is there's zero interaction, right? It doesn't matter how many questions I ask, nobody responds in any way. So hopefully, we'll, when we go outside, we'll have a little more. Uh, here's the thing. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, it actually says this. God says, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord God chooses for you. The issue was not that God didn't want a king for Israel. The issue was the king that they were asking for. They wanted a king that exerted empire power. They wanted a king with authority. Remember what they asked when they came to God and wanted a king? We want a king like who? Like the other nations. They didn't say we want a king like you, God. They didn't say, we want somebody who seeks your own heart, who pursues you, who knows you, who looks like you, who acts like you. They said, we want a king like the other nations. There's a slave mentality that says, we used to be slaves, and now we have to be on top, and we have to win, and we have to get authority, and we have to win by military power, we have to win by political power, we have to win by resources, and gathering up all the riches of everything. We have to gather all of these things, and once we gather all these things, we'll have a king, and we'll have authority, and we'll have power like all the other nations. And God is not upset that they asked for a king. God didn't say, I don't want you to have a king. He said, I want you to have a king that I choose. I want you to have a king for I choose. And here's here's what his qualifications for Israel's king is. I'm going to go quickly through these. Uh, This is all in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. Uh, He says, first, the king has to be an Israelite, which meant he's somebody who will recognize the authority of God. Somebody from the family of God. Second, the king must not acquire many horses, which may not apply a lot to today's version of kings. But but the king must not, the Bible explains, horses came from Egypt, right? So a horse trader has to go back to Egypt, has to interact with a pagan nation at that time, has to go back to this part, and, and there's this idea of gathering. Horses were also meant for what? Not just agriculture, but military, Right? So horses were some of the strongest, chariots are some of the strongest military weapons you can possibly possess and have at that time. And what he's saying is we don't need horses, right? I actually own the cattle on a thousand hills. Remember how I led you through Egypt? Remember how I parted the Red Sea? Remember how I led you through? You don't have to have military strength and power. You can trust in me to be your king and to be your source and to be your strength. The third is the king must not take many wives, uh, it was normal in those times for the kings to have wives and concubines. We'll get into that in 1 Kings because Solomon was a, he was a player. Let's just say that. 
Uh, fourth, the king must not accumulate large amounts of gold and silver, right? Going back to wealth and, and these ideas. And fifth, the king must keep a copy of God's Torah with him and read it throughout his life so that he would rule and reign according to God's principles. This is the king that God wanted, a king that is faithful to him, a king that understands God's authority and God's power and God's strength and who is trying to live into kingdom power and not empire power. So the displeasure of God is not with the request for a king, it's the request for what kind of king that they wanted. They wanted to win more than they wanted to be faithful. They wanted power more than they wanted faithfulness. And so they were willing to make compromises over and over again. They wanted the empire more than the kingdom, and they believed the lie that empire power was better than kingdom power. And it's what people have been doing throughout all of history since Adam and Eve. We don't trust in God's authority and power, so we go and try and get it our way. Just take a bite of the apple. There's something God's holding back on you. You'll have more power, you'll have more authority if you just take a bite of the apple. It's all here, it's right here. Just You see how the compromises, the exception making, all of these things begin to take place. That the key to understanding this is that there's a difference between worldly wisdom and God's standards. So, let's look at Solomon. Uh, go to, if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 9, uh, there's a list of Solomon. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and over 12,000 horses. So we'll put an X through the horses part, right? It just, uh, did not really do good at the horses section. Uh, shouldn't care about riches. The King Solomon made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. That's in 2 Chronicles 9.27. The weight of the gold that Solomon received was 666 talents. That's an interesting number. Uh, that's in 2 Chronicles 9, 13. Uh, the king shouldn't have many wives. He, Solomon, had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, 1 Kings eleven three. Solomon, this is really important. Solomon's name actually means peace, which is ironic as you read through 1 Kings. Uh, here's the shock. Solomon is named as what? He's the wisest man who ever lived. Right? But what was he wise in? Empire power or kingdom power? He knew his empire power. He knew worldly wisdom. And he actually had a cloaked version of kingdom power, right? He knew how to cover the, the, the language of empire power in the name of kingdom power. He knew how to war, work the systems but over and over and over again, the people of God are left wanting something better. Matthew, the Jewish writer, voiced this in our need. He said, if this is the best that the human race can provide, there has to be something else. If Solomon is the greatest, the wisest, then there has to be a better king. There has to be somebody else to walk in these ways. And Jesus walked into the temple in Matthew chapter 12 and said, one greater than Solomon is here. The king that we need has already been given to us. The king that we want has already been offered to us. The one that looks like God. The one that knows how to control power. The one that doesn't fall to the worldly power, but lives into kingdom power, lived among us, walked among us, and his name is Jesus, and he is our Savior, he is our Lord, and he is our King. And it does not matter if it's Donald Trump, or if it's Joe Biden, or if it's somebody else, Kanye, right? We have a king. We have a king. 
We have a king. And so listen, guys, as a pastor, I would never tell you who to vote for. That's not my job. That is not my responsibility. But my job and responsibility is to teach you the ways of the kingdom. And I want to say to you, if you are losing your mind about what's going to happen in November, you don't know the ways of the kingdom yet. If you are making enemies over and over again, if you are making tiny compromises in your own life in order to support your political party or your political leader, you don't know the ways of the kingdom. And I know that there's important issues at stake. And I know that this is going to determine what type of country we're going to become in the future. But I will, I'll give you the truth. Kings and kingdoms have fallen before. There is a king that has reigned on his throne from the beginning of time and will continue to reign there. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our king. Every one of my votes every November goes to Jesus. And I have opinions. And I have thoughts. And I'm going to vote. And I hope that you do too. I just hope we settle down a little bit. Are you with me, church? I just hope we take it down a notch and we move to a place where we recognize that our king and our power and our authority is not, we're not chasing empire power. And so if we don't get it this election, kingdom power is still available to us. And I will choose kingdom power over empire power every day of the week and twice on Sundays. Israel chose wrongly because they chose empire power. Israel chose to make compromises over and over and over again. And you know what happened to Israel? They went into exile. Because they didn't have a king that could sustain them. But God, right, the story of the Bible is God putting his family back together again through Jesus. God, in his grace and mercy, saw all the pitfalls of humans. He saw the sin. He saw the brokenness. He saw our need for, for repentance. He saw our need of forgiveness. He saw all the ways in which we would pursue our power and our authority and our trust over his trust and his power and his authority. And so, because of his grace and mercy, he sent his son Jesus to us. So let's be a people who seek kingdom power, not empire power. Let's not make enemies this election season. Let's make peace. Let's not speak loudly and fail to listen. Let's be the ones who advocate for the powerless. Let's not be the ones who make decisions based on gaining more silver or gold or horses for ourselves when others will suffer. Let's not allow or enable politics that undermine the image of God in all people, including minorities and women. Let's trust in Jesus. Let's trust in the ways of his world and in ways of his way and not in our political system. Hey, I've read this from front to back. And you know what's never mentioned in here? America. <laughs> not once. Not once is it mentioned in here. Not once does, is America brought up in any way. Not once does it talk about Democrats and Republicans. Not once does it talk about the Revolutionary War. Not once does it talk about any of those things. It talks about the kingdom and this is what we say when we say one of the greatest sins of the church is nationalism. This is what we mean. I don't mean that you're excited about politics. I don't mean that you support a candidate. I mean that you have placed the, the, the power of the country over the power of the kingdom. Many of us have gotten more concerned with what's happening in the election than we are with what's happening in the church. 
So a couple takeaways, and I'll wrap up. It's starting to get hot in here, right? We thought of like some rap songs that we could do for Hot Sunday, but all of them were inappropriate. Uh, so here's a couple takeaways. First, raising the next generation always has to be the priority of the church. David did great things as a king. He was a man after God's own heart. What he failed to do was raise up the next generation. Judges chapter 2 says the next generation grew up and did not know Moses or what he had done for them. In the wilderness, we see all of these leaders throughout the Old Testament who led well and were great leaders but failed to raise up their sons and daughters. We will be a church that raises up their sons and daughters. And as great as David was as a king and as a leader, he needed a community to help him be a father. One of the words the Lord has given us in this place is that the evidence of our faithfulness now will be the lives of our children in the future. And if that's going to be the case, then we have to all leverage everything, right? It takes a village to raise a child. I need you to help raise my children so that they know God. I need you to walk beside me. I need you to love them. I need you to serve them. They need other voices in their life that are pointing them towards Jesus. I'm old and I'm a dad and I'm not cool. They need some young people in their lives who are encouraging them to follow Jesus, right? They need leaders and wisdom and, and, and people who've experienced other things walking them and teaching them. The second thing is if we decide to play empire power games, we always lose. If, here's the thing. If we compromise as a church and decide to play by the empire's rules, then what that means is we have to always fight by the empire's rules. And the, here's how the empire works. Once you gain power, you have to fight and protect that power so that you can get more power or you'll lose power. And so there's this constant fighting and battling that's going on, and you've got to protect and defend and fight and battle, and it's all about command and control and power and authority, while the kingdom of God says what we do is we come to the Father empty with nothing to give. I have nothing to offer him. I've not lived a holy life. I've not lived a good life. I'm a sinner broken by God, and I have to come to him in need of forgiveness. We come to him as empty vessels, and we say, fill us up. The way of the kingdom is emptiness. The way of the empire is power. And so we empty ourselves so that the Father can fill us with his authority and power. And here's the good news, guys. Jesus said to his disciples, you will do greater things than I've ever done. You will see greater signs. When we empty ourselves of our power, the Father fills us back. So our power and authorities is not whoever gets elected in November. The source of our power and authorities is not whether this law gets passed or this law gets passed. The source of our power and authority is the king who reigns on high, whose name is Jesus. And over and over and over again, we as the church are called to submit and surrender to that king, not to this king. So a few questions for reflection. Are there areas of your life where you've been leading with empire power versus kingdom power? Are there ways that you've been leading in such a way that it's been about command and control? Take those two columns and just ask yourself, have I been leading in this way or have I been leading in this way? Second is, are there culture wars that you've been fighting and enemies that you've been creating? And what does peacemaking look like for you? I talked to a friend on the phone this week from our church who said, my best friend doesn't live here in town and he's a person that I do these meetings with. We do Zoom meetings online and just to connect and hang out. And he said, I couldn't possibly be further away from this person on the political spectrum. Like if he's over here, I'm way over here. And he said, but something happens when we just sit and listen to each other. We respect each other and we love each other. 
And we don't have to agree on everything. But we've figured out how to have different beliefs and not be enemies. What a good picture for the world right now. Lastly is, have you begun to place your hope in a political party or a political leader more than Jesus as your king? Solomon was the wisest man that ever walked the earth. I think the one thing all of us can agree on is neither of the political candidates are the wisest man that's ever walked the earth. (laughs) And the hope and faith and joy was not to be placed in Solomon. It was to be placed in a future king that would come. So we're going to move into a time of communion. And every time I say that, everybody immediately starts running to communion tables and starts opening things. Just let's, let's, let's go slow today. Let's spend a second just reflecting on those questions. Uh, Emily's going to lead us in a song. And as she does, I want you just to go to the Lord and just say, Lord, kind of a David, search my heart, Lord. Search my heart and know me. Is there any of this empire power in my life that you want to reveal? And is there kingdom power you want me to surrender to? Are there ways in which I've been believing or living or walking that are just not the way you've invited me to? And is there a new invitation in my life? So reflect on those questions for a minute. And then as Emily's singing, just open the juice, open the bread, and take it. And remember this, our king laid down his life for us, friends. Our king let his body be broken. Our king let his blood be shed because he wanted to model the way of kingdom power. If he wanted empire power, he could have risen up at any moment and taken control of Rome. He could have called angels from heaven. He could have had the armies of heaven at his disposal, and he chose instead to make himself nothing and die the death of a criminal on the cross. And here's what he says to us. Take up your cross and follow me. Walk in the way of servanthood that I walk in. Lay down your lives for your friends. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would move in this room right now. I pray that you would give us vision. I pray that you would reveal the areas of our heart where we've been anxious and fearful when you want to give us faith. I pray that you would deal with the areas of our heart where we've been making enemies. We've been fighting and arguing rather than opening the table and and loving our enemies. I pray that you would just breathe. Father, I pray for a breath of peace over our congregation. Peace in the middle of COVID. Peace in the middle of an election season. Peace in a world that's full of racial tension and chaos. I pray that you would breathe your peace over us, Lord. And you would teach us to fight for what's right, pursue what's good, but to love and be filled with kingdom power. So we just say, Boldly and faithfully, Jesus, we trust you as our king. Regardless of what happens in November. Regardless of what our news channel tells us this week, we trust that you are king and we petition you to bring peace on earth. We petition you to make earth as it is in heaven. We petition you to set things right in our world. And we confess that we don't always know how to be ambassadors of that. We don't always know how to walk in that. So we need kingdom wisdom. We need new minds. We need new authority. We need new trust. And so I pray that you would breathe a breath of newness on our congregation. Lord, we trust you. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray.